Hey, this is Bob Lee, and you're listening to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, the world's game from an American perspective. Hola, everyone. Bonjour. And welcome to Over the Ball with Kevin Flynn, alongside Grail Hallett and Sam Griswold, our producer. Today on OTB, we talk to columnist and now author of a new book, John Townsend. John is a long-serving writer for These Football Times and The Guardian, where he specializes in writing that focuses on player development, something that's near and dear to our hearts here on OTB. Uh, he really has some interesting insights. So it'll be great to talk to him. It's been a long time since we've had him on Over the Ball, guys. So uh, so it's been an interesting week for me, guys. I got cast in a movie uh, called uh, The World's Longest Beer Run by the director Peter Farrelly. It's in Australia. But the funny part is, if it's wow. funny at all, I'm, not, perfect? I'm not sure. Uh, they want me to grow my hair long. So my hair has been growing long. And the problem is it was always long during my soccer days, uh, but my hair looks nothing like it did when I was growing in a soccer player. Yeah, we, well, we can, we can uh, definitely attest to that. You can see it. So it's all yeah. gray now. And, uh, you know, got a little bald spot on the top. And uh, so how much can you reveal about this project? Do we, can we know your role or just that you're going to have long uh, hair? Other than crazy man, crazy yeah. man with long hair. No, well, it's a really great story. It's a true story. It's, it's based on this guy that uh, was in like Queens and he was uh, not, in the army, he was, uh, it was the Vietnam War era. And the guys were like, how about our boys that are over in Vietnam? He says, I'm gonna bring them a beer. So he brings each of his friends, uh, I think four of them, he brings them all a beer. I haven't read the full script. So you just get the part that you're reading for. And even if you read for that part, you don't necessarily get that one, but uh, I got cast in it. So, uh, but it's funny, my, you know, my hair lines? is different than it Lots was. Lots of lines? Uh, I don't know, I won't okay. know yet how big it is. And then, you know, you always, you're at the mercy of the editor. So uh, it's been uh, it's been interesting. But last night I actually put my uh, hair in a ponytail and I walked out. And my girlfriend says, yeah, um, turn around or and take that out or we're breaking up. <laughs> so apparently the ponytail wasn't a big hit in the house here. So, uh, well, we're I at the mercy of Sam's editorial knife. If he doesn't like things we say on the podcast, he just we just know he clips those things out. So he, he can boot it. So uh, that's good. So. Anyway, so uh, a lot going on, guys. I wanted to talk quickly uh, before we get to what you're over. Um, I thought it was very funny. The PSG players were complaining because the referees swore at them, which uh, uh, which Snow reminded flakes. me, yeah, exactly, <laughs> which reminded me of my story, which was you know basically playing against the Canton Invaders in the old NPSL, where you know uh, the, the referee blew something, and I I ran by him, and I was like, you know, I, I was you know chewing at him, and he goes, he goes, fuck off, Flynn. I was like, wow. Fuck off, Flynn. <laughs> there you, you go. Know? And guys, it reminded me of it was another story. You can meet with my stories, but um, when I was working at the uh, the uh, the Improv in Lake Tahoe, uh, Mickey Rooney was in the main ballroom, and wow. uh, you know I was at the Improv Club, so our names were on the marquee. So my name was there, and then above mine was in the main ballroom, Mickey Rooney. So between my shows at the Improv, I went over and watched Mickey Rooney, and he had to be in his late seventies, early eighties, even at the time. I think and he was still working and he was doing this sort of song and dance review. And I thought it was so interesting. And then Monday morning, I find myself at Reno airport, six 30 in the morning, getting ready for a flight back to LA. And I'm with the other comedian. And as we're taking our seats, the other comedian says to me, he goes, Hey, you want a cup of coffee? I go, yeah, yeah. So he, he leaves. And as I, as he walks away, I look to my right and there he is the man, the myth, the legend. Mickey Rooney, right? The diminutive so Mickey Rooney. The diminutive Mickey Rooney. He's like, <laughs> yeah, he's like the grail hallet of the entertainment industry. <laughs> so so the guys, uh, I, I go, I have to say something, right? We've been working in the same building at Harrah's all week. So 
I, uh, I walk over very politely. I say, excuse me, Mr. Rooney. I said, my name is Kevin Flynn. I was headlining at the improv this weekend. And I just want to say what an honor it was to share a marquee with you. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. And I said, I took a picture of it because I'm, I'm going to send it to my parents. Uh, they're fans as well. And he looks at me, he goes, Kevin Flynn, Kevin Flynn, go fuck yourself. <laughs> <They're I'm> like, <laughs> oh my God. Mickey Rooney said that to me 6.30 in the morning. I'm like, no, this is a bitter old man now. I, I couldn't believe it. I had, I had like nothing to say. And I go back to take my seat. I'm just kind of shaking my head. I didn't even say anything back to him. I just was like, oh, oh wow. I sit down and just then the other comedian comes by and hands me a cup of coffee. He goes, hey, Kev. He goes, Mickey Rooney's over there. I go, really? You should say hello. <laughs> and he comes, he comes back five seconds later. He told me to go fuck myself. <laughs> so anyway, great. you know, it, it, it reminded me of, of, you know, that's the referee. I mean, how much can they take? We watch oh. culturally referees take different amounts in different cultures. So, uh, you know, you, you know, it used to be verboten here, even though it's a German word, but here in the States to, put your hands on a referee or get in a referee's yeah. face or any of that stuff. And that's sort of gone away a little bit. Um, I've another quick story. I remember doing, um, you know, one of Joe Rogan's first professional gigs was opening for me in Springfield, Massachusetts. And he was a young guy and I knew he was a Taekwondo guy. Uh, he's a nice guy, but he was just, just starting out in comedy. I was, Hey, you want to open for me? So we, we do this gig together and he's about five minutes into his act and he starts getting heck heckled from uh, he was on like a dance floor and there people were up like behind a railing and they were heckling him. And he kind of chewed with him back and forth after a while. And then one guy was like, yeah, well, you're not funny. And he dropped the mic and ran, jumped, leaped over the railing and grabbed the guy by the throat, flipped him down onto his back. And I'm like, oh, my God, Joe, you know, we're, we're comedians. And he's like, look, man, I'm not going to just let some guy yell random shit at me with no. <laughs> No, uh, no payback. I go, well, that's kind of the job. So I'm sort of split with this referee stuff. Is it, is it the referee mm. just takes endless amounts of shit? We expect him to be inhuman and not even respond or do we respect the referee more? Uh, you know, what are your thoughts? guys? Well, I, I saw the whole game PSG from the opening whistle was complaining about everything. I mean, the pitch had ice on it. So it was slick. They were having some problems. They started getting outplayed early. You know, it was just a grumble fest. So I, you know, I just, I have no compassion for them. It was just 90 minutes of complaining on their part ever and, and just diving all over the place. I think beyond this, I mean, I played for the first time in over a year last weekend in this men's league here in Westchester County. And, how how uh, sore are you, dude? Well, I only played about 10 minutes, so it wasn't too bad. But uh, I, because I got a forearm to the face that sparked this brawl. Um, but Whoa. I- uh, Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I just can't believe how much refs put up with in like a men's league right. game and yeah. a regular game, let alone a Champions League game. And I, I don't know. I think it's I think it's about time someone fired back with something like that. And I, I, you know, I'm rarely do they get them. yellow cards. Rarely do they get yellow cards for dissension, sort of, you know, where you'd, you'd get a technical foul in basketball if you yelled at the referee like that, right? I mean, yeah. you can't. So, I mean, and then they like, uh, you know, we hate to generalize, but generally, so I have noticed in my playing days, a lot of the South Americans run up in a pile, or the Spanish mm -hmm. players run up in a pile, Brazilian players, um, which was sort of for literally foreign to me when I first started playing this game. I was like, wow, they, they get right in his face, they get in front of yeah. him. 
yell and now everybody seems to do the other it, so. thing I, I was watching some rugby a while back I guess it was six nations i don't know remember exactly when that was but i was blown away that the ref had a live mic on yeah. him, and you could hear what the players were saying when they approached and it was just it was such a stark contrast to watching a soccer game where everyone's covering their mouth and you know everything yeah. is so kind of secretive Interesting. Um, I know the transparency was was pretty because the, the ref announce is making announcements during the match of what's going on, you know, like mm. throw into so and so or whatever, uh, which I think is really helpful, actually. Yeah. So what is this? Were their comments as disrespectful as sort of the soccer stuff is? Uh, well, yeah. not not well, not what got broadcast. But no, what would I, mean, I say? Because that's a hooligans game, but played by gentlemen. So I, I don't know if there was a difference there. Yeah, I, to me it seemed more it's more kind of in line. But I don't know, Grail. You, you were mentioning that like in rugby, refs take just as much. They shit. they they know. have they've had a huge problem with the players' dissent, language, all that stuff. I think it's just I think it's universal. You know, I mean, the one thing about soccer is if you're tactful, you can kind of direct it away from the ref, and you're you're not in an enclosed place, right? So you can kind of like complain to the wind, as I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. so I think players just get away with a lot of stuff, but again, again, to me, the best refs set the tone early in the game and they tend to have control of the game right? and be consistent. So, yeah. but look, everybody's behavior should be on call here, you know, because the fans are always so quick to criticize referees they are so quick to criticize the players and rightly so many times. Well, we've certainly entered a point where the fans should be criticized as well for the racist yeah. stuff people do uh, for Manchester United's uh, Super League protest. I mean, they they had opinion on their side, and I think they sort of squandered it by by acting like it was the raid on the Capitol. You know, and I'm sure like, you know, Manchester United fans, if they were doing what some people do in this country, they say, well, well, it wasn't Manchester United fans. It was actually Antifa that yeah. was protesting that day. And it was no, it was Liverpool fans dressed as Manchester United fans. So, uh, yeah, you know. It, yeah, so, no, so no, you know, it, it reminded me of storming the Capitol. It no, it did. I was surprised. They, I was surprised that uh, kind of as it was happening live, that one of the commentators on NBC SN didn't make that reference. But maybe they, somebody was saying into their ear, "Whatever you do, don't mention January 6th. But uh, yeah, it was don't just mention the war. Don't mention. Yeah, the yeah war. I mean, they, they interviewed the Manchester United uh, head of the supporters club, and you know, he was saying something like, you know, that gate was left open from the inside, which was nonsense because they tore the gate down. What he should have said was, look, we represent all supporters. This is not who we are. There's a proper way to uh, protest. And we went, you know, uh, above and beyond. And that would have been like, fine, but they didn't. This is guy like doubled down saying they brought it on themselves. There's a lot of frustrations. We hated the Glazers. We've hated them for 16 years, you know, Super League, blah, blah, blah. It was in defense. I thought it was in defense. Yeah, but yeah, but yeah, but yeah, they also they don't hate their money, and that's the thing, you know. I mean, well, you know what they hate about this, but you know, this is the thing that I've I've read a lot about this. This is the thing they hate. They hate the fact that the Glazers pay themselves a dividend. Okay, so it's a money making. They, they take money out of the coffers to give themselves a lot of money every year, and they're in incredible debt on top of that. So they're, while they're paying down the debt, they're paying themselves off a big chunk of money. And I think it's how they, how they run the team that drives the fans so crazy. Well, welcome to the hedge fund world, basically. Yeah, exactly. 
I will say, yeah, I will say just listening to a couple of podcasts and reading some articles in the British press, it it doesn't seem like people, I mean, people are obviously condemning the violence and the fact that people were hurt, but people are very quick to point out, you know, this is kind of what happens when, you know, people's voices aren't heard and the fans are ignored. So I don't feel like they've lost the sympathy of, uh, of the press the way you know, maybe, oh. maybe you feel, Grail. Well, I can say, Sam, during that live coverage where they had, you know, Rebecca Lowe and the two Robbies and Arlo White was up in the gantry and stuff, mm-hmm. all of them were very outspoken in saying, this is beyond the pale. Mm-hmm. This is unacceptable. This is not what being a supporter is. Um, so so I, do th- I, I do think there were a lot of people that just said, I don't, I, you know, I don't care what the Glazers have done. This is not how you do it. The other thing mm-hmm. is there were like 10 and 11 year old kids on the pitch there with their dads. So I mean, that to me was one of the most disturbing things is you're pulling your kids into this whole thing. Yeah. Hopefully they just get arrested and they're banned for life and mm. the real supporters can kind of do what they do. So is what it is- a little is it a little cynical of me to ask, you know, how much this has to do with the fact, I mean, you did mention the way they run the club, the financial picture, but with the fact that Man United have not been very good for the last, I mean, almost decade now, I mean, you know, I didn't see anybody storm in the field at, at Chelsea or Man City as they were I think advancing to the Champions League final. I think it's the combination, Sam, of that of frustration with wanting to be better, but also just never, ever accepting the fact that Americans own the team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, you know, do they have a problem with the Russian oligarchs or the Chinese now bought a well, team? And, I mean, you know, so it's sort of like what my point is. The money that goes in there now for the Premier League, NBC, and all that world coverage, uh, Sky B and everything, hey, man, that comes at a cost. That comes at a cost. And unfortunately, a lot of the American stuff that we don't like here, uh, you know, you talk about someone leaving a gate open. Well, that happened to the Capitol raid. Uh, you yeah. talk about these owners, they want to make money on these things because NFL, they don't care. They'll move your, your team. If they're not making money, you don't get a tax break. They'll move it in a heartbeat. Don't like that. You know, we talked about the Cronkies last week and, and Missouri is St. Louis taking away a team from there, even though he's from there. there was no, yeah. It's all about money. So I get it. Uh, but at, at the end of the day, you know, a lot of these teams were struggling financially and these, these uh, businessmen take it over, uh, which is antithetical to what uh, English football was about. But look, man, they, they certainly take the money and it's yeah. helped to heighten the league and bring in better players from all over the world. The best ones are going there now. So it's, you both, can't I have it both, both ways. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I, I see yeah. both sides. I, I really do. But for me guys, as a former player and certainly not anywhere near at that level, but to go on the pitch, that is sacred ground, man. That is like the altar. Oh, just... That is the altar. And you stay off the field. And where was the... fans get involved. It's the, the worst. Yeah. And by the way, I think it is an indictment of, of, of the football club that they, they knew in advance there were going to be tons of protests. They should have had cops at every single gate. They should have had over, over representation of, of police there. And that would have quelled the whole thing. So it did, it did surprise me that it was just not handled well. Right at all by the club, so oh, I was like a throwback to the hooligan days. So it really uh, was, yeah, because really, they certainly know how like to that. deal with it. Yeah. So let's let's talk about something positive here. Um, Jesse Marsh, you know, Sam, last week you talked about how he's, you know, seemingly didn't really. It wasn't big news, and it really should have been. I mean, here we are, and we know what Christian Pulisic's eating for dinner, and you know, and now Jesse Marsh as a coach. Uh, talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I'm still a little bit disappointed by the uh, lack of coverage of this. Um, not not that people aren't talking about it, but just that people mm-hmm. aren't really coming out and acknowledging how big of a deal it is. Although I will give MLSsoccer.com some props because they had a story uh, titled that this is a huge deal for American soccer. 
Uh, so I'm all for that. I still am waiting for the New York Times, you know, based right here in the USA to uh, maybe put something together. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the article points out basically just what we were talking about and how crazy a opportunity this is for, uh, for Jesse Marsh and what it means for us soccer, which is a, a ton, because as we've talked about, we still don't get, even though we now have these players like Pulisic dominating in champions League semifinals, people still don't think we really understand the game. Uh, yeah, so, right. um, that's, it annoys yeah. me. And, I think you know, he's Jesse's- also gone through the appropriate hurdles, Sam, where he's not going to have that thing that Bob Bradley had at Swansea where he just came in with a massive question mark over his head. Mm -hmm. I feel like Jesse Marsh has earned the respect to be in the position. I'm just saying over in Europe, he may Mm -hmm. not have gotten the appropriate props from the press yet, but I I think, I think he's uh, you know, he's seen as legit over there. Yeah. yeah, but then, you know, then again, we get a, like a, a guy like, you know, Bradley, the way he was treated over there for all the knowledge and success he's had on every single level. Yet you get, you know, big fat Sam Allardyce gets a job every week. And, and not only that, but you got uh, Mourinho lands on his feet again. He's still cashing checks from like five clubs. It's amazing. <laughs> Jesus, you know, he's, he's failing up and over and across and down. It's unbelievable. He has totally lost the thread. Uh, he cannot control players uh, anymore. He blames players when they lose. It's it's reprehensible, I think, the way he acts. Yet, it seems like the safe bet to hire a Sam Allardyce or a Mourinho. Thoughts? Need, Sam, we need your we need your <laughs> your help here on the Mourinho fascination. Well, you got the Roma job. No, but they got the I mean, Roma, the, um, got the the Roma the, job like a week after he was let go, which was incredibly fast. But Sam, please, the floor is yours. What is the fascination in Italy with Jose Mourinho? Well, I think the fascination is really, you know, the last time he was there, he coached Inter and they won the treble, which is the last time an Italian team has won the Champions League. Um, I also think there is still a respect in Italy for a defensive tactical approach like there is not in other leagues. Um, And if you look at Inter this year, they won the league with, I think, you know, probably less than 50 percent possession in every game, just counterattacking and some people thought it was really boring. Other people thought it was really impressive. I, I think it's actually a good move for Roma, and I think he'll do okay there. Um, I, I think Mourinho at one of these kind of lifestyle clubs is not a good fit because there it's just as much about the style that you're playing as it is um, the right. results you're getting. I think Roma have sort of tried to become a team like that, but I think this is more of an acknowledgement that you know, they're not quite at that level and they need to just concentrate on winning uh, and have a really effective approach. Uh, I mean, witness the game against Man United last week where they were up to one yeah. and a half time and lost six two, playing, you know, still on the front foot for the whole game. I mean, that's a little crazy. So I think he'll do okay. I, you know, it'll bring more attention to City A, which I guess is good. I could care less about that, but um, I, I think it's. I don't think it's a bad move, and there's definitely well, some. It's brand, a, safe, there's it's definitely, a safe move. It's a, just a safe. Yeah, and there's definitely some the brand name, you know, recognition. Yeah. This is a new ownership group that came in um, just about a year ago and is, you know, trying to make a splash. And um, this is, you know, a, a big sexy name. For sure. I will. Look, I, will, I will go out on a limb here and give him thirty months, which is two and a half years, which is his expiration date essentially in every job. And, uh, you know, like Flinny was saying, he'll, he'll just take that, he'll, they'll buy him out early and he'll take that salary and add it to the 58 million or whatever we quoted a couple of weeks ago. That he's millions, still earning. And, millions and millions of euros. It's, uh, it's, it's unbelievable. And, you know, guys, so he leaves the Spurs and do you see any, you know, he had 
Bale had gotten very little playing time. Well, he, he leaves and he scores a hat trick, you know, yeah, and, and Bale, some Bale of the magic so- that Bale, oh, they looked so good with Sun and, and, and uh, Kane. I mean, they looked yeah. really, really great, you know, all out swashbuckling sort of football. So, um, Screw him. Can Fuck I, him, as I once said to that referee. No, one other him. thing. One other thing I want to ask our uh, Serie A expert here is Sam. How about the whole? I feel like Mourinho has kind of a macho thing to him. Mm-hmm. You know, he's about that. That's just who he is. I mean, that's kind of his uh, what how people perceive him. Are you you does referring that, to Machissimo? Well, yeah, kind of. I mean, so does that is does that play well over in Italy too? Kind of that tough guy. Uh a little bit. I mean, okay. I, I I don't think Italy's as um as drawn to the sort of like charismatic coaches the way other places are. Yeah. I mean, Juve signing Pirlo to be coach was kind of the first, I don't know, to me like lifestyle coach. Um, but I, I don't know how much that has to do with it. Okay. All right. Well, good. Uh, you know, uh, Mourinho every year. Look, great. Man. Since we've been since we were at Sirius XM FC way back when, we were talking about Mourinho and leaving. Yeah. And, criticizing players and he gone and you know the three-year shelf life that he had and then was getting less and less each place he's going to so uh yeah. it's unbelievable to me it's the same thing like every year sam allardyce pops up it's like and bradley wasn't given a shot i'm gonna give as much as this pains me i'm gonna give Mourinho more credit than sam allardyce so i find to be just cronyism all right yeah. good stuff guys uh let's take a break here and we come back we'll be talking to uh writer john townsend he's got a new book out called it's just a ball explaining the complexity of a simple game which is what we're all trying to do every day uh you're listening to otb over the ball is brought to you by soccer america go to socceramerica.com join and sign up for the soccer america pro membership it's just four dollars and ninety cents a month or forty nine dollars a year and by Ticket IQ, the simplest and cheapest way to buy tickets. Go to TicketIQ.com, and when it asks for the promo code, punch in OTB10 for $10 off of your purchase. Can't lose. All right, our guest today on Over the Ball is a long-serving writer for these football times, uh, many articles in The Guardian as well, where he specializes in the writing of focusing on player development, something that is certainly near and dear to our hearts here on the show. Uh, He always has really interesting uh, things to say, interesting insights into this game. It has been a long time since he's been on Over the Ball. We have missed him. Uh, John Townsend, welcome back to OTB. How are you, brother? Kevin, I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So uh, I appreciate you sent me a copy of your book. Um, it's uh, where I'm going to go grab it. Hold on. It's right here. I should have had it with me. Um, it's just a ball and uh, a lot of soccer books out there. I'm about a third of the way through it. It's got a lot of really great stuff in there, um, but there's a lot of soccer books out there. What to, what inspired you to write this one? So it's a, it's a long story, but I'll try to, I'll try to give you the cliff notes. I, I wrote an article in 2014 um, about just a, an experience I had in the Netherlands and how it influenced my uh, development as a player. And um, in that article kind of caught fire in the soccer coaching world. And, mm-hmm. and, and I say world globally. I mean, the FA was doing stuff on it. The KNDB and, and Holland was doing stuff on it. Um, over here in the States, it actually got less attention. And then as it gained more traction, more youth coaches started understanding what I was trying to get across. And the reason I wrote that article was I didn't see a lot of uh, writing from a coaching perspective from someone who actually played the game. And a lot of writing that I was seeing was so, um, I would say, diluted or almost um, just trying to stay within the 
the white lines of what's acceptable. And I was like, well, this is a method that I experienced and I kind of ran with, and I think it's very uh, applicable to my journey and maybe others. And, um, and so I decided to put some ideas on paper and a publisher had approached me to um, write the book. And it just took me quite a bit because it's, it's like you said, a dense topic. It's not something you can just rattle off. It takes a lot of research and, life experience. And then, um, honestly, I, it became one of these things where I started to try to draw connections across spectrums of different sports and disciplines as well. So, um, that, that's why this book is a bit unique and, uh, it's not just a, here's why Zidane's a great player or Messi's the best ever or Ronaldo. It's not one right. of those things. I mean, I say in the book that those books have been written and, um, this is more of a deep dive into the other side of the, the, the development story. So to speak. Yeah, I'm really excited to get deeper into the book because one of the stories you tell is the, the Dutch story where you were watching some practices and you just jumped in. Hmm. And it made a lot of sense to me because it seems like, you know, coaching at its purest is, is great. But what happens is it gets watered down as it goes down the, the levels. And by the time you get to the kids, sometimes it doesn't look anything like it did at the higher level. One of the things that you talked about was how they break the game down into components and then the intensity factor is there. So, uh, you know, you were talking about the 10,000 hours, you know, doing, doing things within the game, uh, you know, group breaking off into groups of three or four, where you're doing a certain aspect of the game, but at high intensity, which I think is a lot of things when I watch kids games or kids practices, that's what it lacks. It lacks that, that intensity. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So one of the big criticisms that people initially took from the article and then, you know, uh, when they learned kind of what I was trying to get at was, you can do anything for 10,000 hours or 10,000 touches. And if you do it robotically, you'll do that robotically. Um, and so what I saw in, in Europe and in Holland in particular was every passing pattern, every dribbling um, exercise or everything in a grid was done at game speed. It was done with opposition sometimes. And they didn't move on to that next progression uh, until they had focused on mastery of that movement. So it wasn't just, yeah, you got it. Let's go ahead and move on. It was, well, if you're passing to the right foot at the right pace at the right time, kind of that Croyfism. Right. And then, um, so where I just kind of made up, but the, the idea was they're looking at um, pro progression and perfection, but progression first. Being at the young level, um, it wasn't trying to replicate what Ajax does at the highest level, but this is the model. This is the system in which we're going to play. And um, and so what I saw in in Holland was, a systematic repetition based approach that had a game context. And I think we kind of lack that in this country where we just say, well, here's the game and we'll spend 10 minutes doing some dribbling exercises and off you go to the next thing. And in one thing I noticed is in, in different countries, they will do something to the point of not exhaustion, but till they get it right. And we sometimes jump a little bit too far ahead and um, yeah. we have to come back anyway. So that's kind of where right. I was going to go with that idea. Yeah, and a little bit of it's like, a, you know, it's just mindful, mindless sort of back and forth passing or something with no intention. And then I, I think a lot of times coaches are babysitters for the uh, for the young ones and parents don't quite always respect that stuff. So, Grail, you have a question for John? Yeah, uh, John, congrats on the book. Uh, thanks for joining us. Um, one of the things you talk about in the book is not just playing soccer, but embracing it as a lifestyle, which is a very broad statement. Uh, can you just describe a little bit about uh, what, what you mean by that exactly? Yeah. So one of the things that I have found my upbringing, and I'm very lucky, I think anyone who grew up on uh, in a soccer hotbed in this country, or even went abroad and had some good experiences, 
it became part of your identity, part of an extension of your life. So when I was a kid, um, taking a soccer ball with me was kind of what I did. Uh, you know, I'd go to the park, soccer ball would be with me, go to the bus stop, soccer ball would be with me. And, and I realized that if I wanted to be a better player, I needed to kind of immerse myself in that identity as a soccer player. Um, and I think when you do anything to the point of pursuing excellence or some, some degree of uh, advancement, you, you want to embrace that from a uh, say molecular level, but you want it to be part of who you are. And so I think kids today are almost, they see it as an extracurricular, but not as an extension of who they really are. And, and there's a balance there. You don't want to be so immersive where you don't do anything else. But mm -hmm. I think if you can embrace the, the challenges, the, the process, um, and then understand that um, you know, the game appears in many different ways where you can watch a game on Saturday on, on TV and you can still learn from it. You can go play with your friends in the backyard and still learn from it. Um, I just wanted to be an extension of who I was. And that's what I was seeing with my peers in Europe. And then even where I grew up in Northern California and then in Chicago, it was just like, okay, I found communities where this was um, kind of a lifeblood. And I, and I really embraced that as a, as a young man myself. Dan? Um, yeah, you mentioned, John, um, the, uh, the, the Dutch model being over in the Netherlands and everything. And we, we've talked to a lot of people who seem to say, well, the prevailing wisdom seems to be, yes, these other countries do things very well, but here in the US, we're so different. We can't just sort of import one model. Um, I guess, first of all, do you think that's true? Um, and what have you seen in your travels and experiences that you think could work you know, really well here in the US? So I think a lot of that, um, I, one, to answer your first question, I don't think any one model is going to be that, uh, that panacea that's gonna solve everything in our development uh, conundrum. But I think it all does start with the ball and the relationship with the ball. And one of the things that I saw in my travels and in my own upbringing was there's a, a high degree of giving kids the license to explore their abilities on the ball. Sometimes we go to an American soccer practice and you might see laps, lines, um, coaches talking, lectures of the, the L's. Um, and you want to avoid that. You would say, okay, warm up in pairs with the ball, get a lot of contacts on that ball. And I think what we tend to lack here is we try to put the cart before the horse. And, and, and one of the things that um, going back to the identity question is you didn't want to be a bad player because you didn't want to be inadequate on the ball. And that was one of the, the things that I saw as, as, as a young man is, you know, I'm not going to get the ball. I'm not going to get playing time if I'm a liability. And so to do that, I better practice on, on the street. I better be in the courts. I better be at my soccer practice. I better be on my own. And that's kind of where I think we need to begin to um, give players the the freedom. And, and I, I, I don't want to say overcoach, but let them understand the importance of their relationship with the ball, because that does dictate their enjoyment level. If you are a player who's not good on the ball, you're not going to enjoy not playing much, or you're not going to enjoy getting bypassed by your teammates or yelled at by your coach or whatnot. So um, that was something that I feel is a really important element of the book is whatever level you're at, the ball is the, the thing that you should develop that relationship with, because that does lead to the enjoyment and the advancement at the same time. Look, you know, it, th this book speaks to me and your experiences speak to me just because of what the game has done for everybody, basically, on this panel and mm -hmm. on this call. Um, you know, we, 
I used to make jokes about the lifestyle of soccer, meaning that the mullets and the flip-flops that everybody would wear, you know, in the, the warm-up suits, you go to the coaches convention and these guys who haven't played, uh, you know, at any level are wearing all the gear. But so, but the really thing that spoke to me was the, the sort of the spiritual element uh, that this game provides. I mean, certainly for me, I've learned about race and religion and ethnicity and playing styles and color and just everything that it opened uh, this world up to me. Um, and, you know, you, in your book, you talk about the sort of existential moment that you have where you just see a ball rolling across in front of you in a, in a rain swept San Francisco night that spoke to you, man. It, it was like, it, it just was like you were in a bit of a funk personally mm-hmm. and, and you saw this ball and it sort of led you uh, to a new path, a new direction. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. You know, that was one of the, the more revealing, I mean, when we first went through that iteration of that chapter, um, I, I kind of go back to this thing that a professor told me when I was uh, getting my degree, which is the best writing is honest writing. And um, I was going through a career change and I was under the belief that a lot of American players are, which is as soon as your eligibility is up, your game's done. Like you're done. Like, you know, you're not going to play pro you use men's league, but that's Sunday league. And, and I, I really wasn't satisfied with that. And it wasn't like I was searching for something that wasn't there. I just was, okay, life's complicated. I'm going through a funk. I'm changing careers what makes me happy and it became this weird thing where I went for you know a walk I was kind of you know just exploring the area I couldn't sleep and um I came across this ball I'm like well I know what that is and I'll just start running with this thing and kicking it around because I didn't have any intention of dribbling that ball around but it kind of overtook me it was like this I was a kid again there was no pressure there was no coaching there was no game it was just me and that ball and I think that was a pivotal moment of my life and as serendipitous as it may be, um, I think the lesson for everybody is the game is there if you look hard enough. You just have to find what it means to you and how it speaks to you. I think sometimes we look at the white lines and the bibs and the cones, and that's the game. It's like, well, no, it could be against your garage wall or you know, in, in your basement. It could be with anybody. And that's kind of what the, the main thesis of that point was. It's, you know, self-discovery is a big thing and, and you change as the game changes. And as you get older, there's still opportunity for you to, to find enjoyment where there wasn't um, some before. Right. I, uh, you know, I miss the moments with the players. That's, you know, so much, but to me, it spoke, uh, it's almost like therapy, that ball. I'm sure it has been that way yeah. for all the guys that were, that were on it. It's, it's therapy. I would be lost for an hour uh, with my own thoughts, you know, playing the ball. You know, in fact, when you, you know, reading that chapter, it was interesting because when I was in high school, Sunday mornings, I would pretend I would go to church, uh, you know, Catholic church, and I would go to the beach and I'd go for a run. Then I'd jog on the golf course with barefoot. And then I would start throwing the ball up against a log. I realized that that was my, my spirituality. That was my, it was for me and it was alone and it was with the ball and it's that same relationship. And here I was, I was thinking my parents, I was fooling them all the time, skipping church by playing soccer, which was really my church. And my father told me years later, he goes, oh, I know you were kicking the ball down at the beach, but hey, you, you were doing your thing, man. And I was like, all right, dad. So, good <laughs> grill, you have a follow-up? Yeah. Uh, so, John, like you, I'm a big, big believer in fundamentals um, as both a player and as a coach. And, um, you know, to me, the best players that I played with are always the ones that had kind of mastered the fundamentals, not the ones who did one amazing thing a game, but the people that did consistently like the right pass 99% of the time. Have we gotten away from teaching the fundamentals 
and, and has just exposure to the sport and all the highlights of amazing things that our people do, has, has that gotten us away from doing just the, 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 the fundamentals better? I think, I think there's some definite truth to that. I think the fundamentals, um, I had a great coach that once told me some players play the piano, others carry the piano, you carry the piano, John. And um, a lot of players did not like that lecture. And I, I thought that was amazing. I'm like, great, I'm part of the team. Like, whatever you need for me to do. And I think the American ethos uh, should be that type of attitude. I think we, we have grown up with an exhibitionist type culture, YouTube, uh, you know, highlights and we have access to the world's game, the highest level, all levels. And we see some amazing things before they were amazing. They were fundamentally sound. And I think if I teach my players one thing, it's before you can actually do that one thing out of a hundred times, do the 99, right? Like get that right. Because I mean, anyone who's played the game or coached knows that there are certain players who we call them black holes. The ball goes in and never comes back out. You don't want right. to be that person. And you want to, you want to share the ball, share the experience, move the, the play around. And, and to get to that point, um, I look at basketball players as great examples before they can do a lot of the great highlight things. They're doing jump shots in the rain. They're, they're, they're doing the fundamentals. They're dribbling down to the bus stop. I mean, soccer's not different. And I think we right. need to start framing it in that way. And I think Kevin, on your show way back when, I think you mentioned like dribbling a ball or walking with a ball is a fundamental thing for kids to do just, you know, with your friend, just right. going to a bus stop. But that was, that was part of something that I think has been lost on us with the digital age, smartphones and games. But um, again, bring it back to your question. I think the fundamentals are still the glue. It's still the, 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 the gas you put in your engine and um, the turbo and the, 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 the nitrous, I guess, is the skill that, you know, the highlight real right. stuff. We can't go anywhere without that fundamental stuff. Yeah. And I mean, the American game has been criticized for physicality in an earlier sort of generation. We're moving away from that a, a little bit, but uh, it's almost like, you know, what you're mentioning is you got to know the notes before you can play some jazz and improv. You, you got to be able to do the fundamentals. And I think, um, you know, that's, that's what you picked up in so many different places. Mm -hmm. Sam? Yeah, John, you've touched on this a little bit, but um, this idea that in America, you know, we have all these different sports that, you know, contribute to our sport culture. And often it seems like soccer gets left out of that. Um, or we talk a lot about how people, you know, are almost afraid to compare soccer to other sports because they're worried maybe it means, you know, they don't know anything about soccer. Um, how, how do you see soccer as fitting into the bigger picture here in the U.S.? And, um, you know, how can it be sort of a, a positive that we do play other sports here? So when I've talked to coaches internationally, I went over to the U.K. for a little bit, um, visit my sister. Um, they said that they love American players before the age of 14, because you're so athletic, you're so coordinated, you're so fast, you're so balanced, you're coachable. And then there's this weird thing at 14 to 18, where the American player kind of gets lost. And I think there's a specialization effect here where in Europe, they will gravitate in South America too, they'll gravitate toward the main sport. Here, I think we kind of have a conundrum where there are so many varieties of different outlets for kids that specialization is frowned upon. And I'm not saying, you know, multi-sports is a bad thing. I played three or four sports as a kid too, but I knew what my calling was, which was soccer. Um, and, I, and, and I was willing to give up other things to, um, to play that game. Um, and I think the American experience is, is unique because we have things that other countries don't have to confront, which is four other main sports that are culturally embedded in our society. Um, soccer, if you look hard enough, as I say in the book, it's there. 
but it's, it has to be on earth where baseball doesn't have to be on earth. And someone once told me until you see a soccer stadium or kids playing on a park, almost every other block, we're still going to have this, this leap to make. And, and my, my hope is, is, is it becomes more popular, more accessible and, and people embrace it as, you know, part of their cultural identity. Um, we can, we can get up to that level where, you know, you go play street, pick up basketball or, 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 you know, sandlot baseball. Um, I, I truly believe that it has that potential. I just think we, as a, as a community, soccer community need to continue to promote that. And um, it's a hard sell. It really is because, you know, we, we are still in the ascendancy as a national team. And even with, you know, our domestic league, we still are trying to get to these upper levels. But again, before you can get to those levels, you have to have that cultural uh, bedrock to, to build it upon. I mean, you don't start a house building starting with the roof. You've got to start with that foundation. And it's something that we've learned a hard lesson on in this country. We've tried to do probably 2010 and it's like, well, maybe it was a little bit, a little bit too cart before the horse. Um, but getting back to the basics, I think, uh, Identity and culture are, are the big linchpins for me. Yeah, you know, Christian uh, Pulisic has talked about those formative years. He said that was, you know, 14 to 16 was really when he was like, wow, that's, I needed that. And he got it. You know, Sam, I always talk about the University of Massachusetts. I went up there for the soccer alumni game and the football stadium, the football team is having a, having a game. There were probably 200 people in the stands, yet surrounding the stadium all the way around were just hundreds of kids playing soccer and I thought when they're little they play but for some reason that that 14 to 16 year old they start to drop off they start to play other sports and that's what we uh, we need to do um you know one thing I thought was interesting I've just got to that chapter this morning but you talk about the Belgian uh model there mm. and sort of you know, I, I was thinking about it. It's like, you know, we always hear about the Dutch, the Germans, the English, uh, French even, but rarely is the Belgian, are the Belgians mentioned, yet you go into it in your book. Talk about why they're so successful for such a small country. What, what, are, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I think they're doing exactly what we could do um, at a micro level. So we obviously are macro at the size of our country, the, the depth of um, competition of sports and athletes, but here, here's where I think they did it right. They went to the Germans, they went to the French, they went to the Dutch, they went to other models and said, what's the best that we can implement like now? And they were willing to concede that they didn't know enough about what they were doing. Like they were willing to take that ego hit and say, okay, blank slate, Germany did the same thing, but the Belgians decided, well, we can control this environment by going from the city level saying, we're gonna build soccer courts and we're gonna build environments and then we're going to build them in communities that love the game anyway. So you don't have to get in your car or on a bus or on your bike to go somewhere. You just walk to your apartment complex. So we're going to start from right. the community level and then we're going to do it all over the country. And then we're going to streamline our coaching education to align with the best models that our competitors in Europe are already doing well. And so it was a, um, an interesting case study and it, it paid dividends because I think they're still like number one team in the world now. And, and, and they're producing players that um, fit in any system. That's the other thing is you get the uh, Belgian players that are playing in all different leagues that are playing in all different formations, all different positions. And they're, they're able to do it. It's not like they produce one type of player. It's right. dynamic and fluid and skillful and powerful. And it's like, wow. Okay. Um, I'm watching champions league and I'm seeing a number of Belgian players out there. They're the stars. Interesting. And, that groundwork was laid, um, you know, several years ago, but that's kind of what that iterative process was. Take the best, what works here, go ahead and implement it. And then, you know, rinse, repeat. And I think that's what the Belgian model, and I think there, there are, 
advantages because they are small um, and they have close proximity to their neighbors, but that willingness to learn and to, um, to explore and to say, hey, we don't know everything. Let's just go to the drawing board and let's incorporate creativity and new ideas. That's what we need to really do in this country. Yeah. And you talk about diversity, how it's a strength for the Belgians. And I think that that the U.S. could, could make that as well. Because look, man, sure. we want to start producing hazards and, and De Bruyne's. Yeah. Is there a more complete player than, than De Bruyne? You know, it's, right. uh, it's great to watch. So, hey, the book is It's Just a Ball, Exploring the Complexity of a Simple Game. Uh, the game's simple. Life is complicated. But uh, this, this book is a really a work of passion and a lot of knowledge in this thing and a lot of great ideas. And I encourage uh, all seven of our listeners to uh, get out there and <laughs> and uh, buy a copy because it's, 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 it's really well written, John. Uh, congratulations on it. It's a lot of hard work. It, uh, it shows. And uh, hey, look, we're all in this together to make this game uh, so we can win the World Cup and start to make it part of our culture so the game can speak to others as it's spoken to, to everybody on this, uh, on this podcast today. So we, thanks, for, thanks for joining us, John. Well, I appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much. Hey, remember to tweet us at Over the Ball, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and write a review. In fact, make us one of your favorites. It makes a big difference. All right, that was great, guys. Uh, I'm interested to keep reading this book. It was, uh, it was, it's, it's, it's really dense and it's a long book uh, for you. Yeah, for me, a book in no, general. No, Jason, no pictures. I mean, a, well, yeah, exactly. That's why I draw my own uh, <laughs> to just sort of keep myself entertained. But it was great talking to uh, to John. He's a you know, he's a bit of a Pied Piper for the business here for soccer. Yeah, I think country, we're so. I think we're all big on fundamentals too. By the way, you know. I yeah, think. yeah, and about how we trained because, like, you know, Grail with you know, I think the you became the player that you were because you were playing in the streets of England every yeah. single day right. for hours. You know, and I think we don't have that. Uh, you know, I remember playing American football at the bus stop and you know throwing the football on the way home. And so, you know, when I got to college, I started to just bring the ball with me as I was going around campus. It was like an advertisement for the soccer team. Did you bring it on dates or what was that uh, nobody, offered? Nobody, I got to be honest, it got me a few dates. I'll tell you that. It's a great oh, opening you line. Flitty juggling <laughs> on the street corner. Hey, hello. Ace. Hello, anybody want to go for a drink? <laughs> well, I'm not English, first of all. As you know, oh, I'm Irish. But, but, I was that saying, was, but, the, but that was the visual I had. Say, Rebecca, you're hot. You want to see a rainbow? <laughs> Here you go. So, uh, all right, guys. So uh, we've missed uh, the Champions League a little bit. Let's do a quick recap of that. Uh, what were your thoughts on watching Champions League play? I think that I think the two best teams won. I mean, yeah. I, I just watching both those games, both legs of both games. I just thought Man City was just uh, far superior to PSG. And uh, and I thought Chelsea. I think Real Madrid's like in a weird place moving forward. I feel like they're they, they're getting kind of old. And Ramos came back, but he looked a step slow. And uh, you know, I've got to give credit to Tuchel because he's really turned Chelsea around. So uh, I think you know, oh. I, in all England, in all English final is not ideal though. Even I have to admit that. I think it'd be better if you had other teams represented. But uh, yeah, you know, PSG, it's interesting. They, um, I think the fact that they do not play great talent all year kind of gets them frustrated when they do start to play, uh, you know, tough teams like this and and teams that play for a full 90. And Man City just wears smothering. Down, they are smothering. Yeah, they down. Yeah. So you could see why they were frustrated. And then um, I guess Di Maria had a nightmare. Well, yeah, it was interesting. So you could you could see it building. We've all played the game, so we know it. We've felt it ourselves before. Like, it's just building over time because he had a bad game. And then uh, in the 79th minute or whatever it was, or 69th minute, he stomped on Fernandinho's foot off the pitch. 
straight red. I mean, no, no, no doubt about it. But this was the interesting thing is um, Jim Beglin, who does the color commentary for CBS Sports, uh, referenced the Latino anger. And the minute he said that, I started looking at my watch saying, how long is it going to take for some reaction? Well, social media clearly lit up because like seven minutes later, Jim basically apologized on air. And, uh, it's, a, it's a whole woke culture, man. You and I'm not sure now. that that's the end of it either, because they didn't talk about it in the studio, nor should they. But I things had to have blown up because it was a caricature, the statement. Yeah, but, you know, this is like, you know, outdated, you know, look, the new woke culture, everything you're going to say is going to offend someone if you describe them in any way uh, about their ethnicity or color or anything. And look, we're all behind that. But, you know, I sometimes think people get a little too uh, hypersensitive, which seems to be what's happening now. You overplay your hand because, look, if if we said Roy Keane and his Irish temper. That was probably said a million times back yeah. in the day. And no one batted an eye because you know why? Roy Keane lost his Irish temper. I can't tell him how many times Kevin Flynn and his Irish temper. You know, so yeah. it's sort of like you just I was never offended. To a background right. anymore. You just can't. I right. mean, he could have just but said. But anymore, anymore is the key, Grail. No, where, no where, but I'm saying yeah. he could have said De Maria, the player, has a propensity for losing his temper. I mean, I'm not right, saying right. that way because that's way too flowery, but I'm just saying, hey, that doesn't surprise me. Di Maria has done this before. <laughs> I'm telling you, the first time I played with some Brazilians, you know, when I was kind of working, you know, at the Cosmos summer camp, they, they just picked up the ball and went home or they kicked it in the woods. You'd be like, what is that about? Like, because if you were an American, you'd be like, dude. You kick yeah. the ball in the woods? What, like, you pussy? What do you shut up? By, by the way, the single biggest surprise of both games to me was Pulisic not starting. After yeah. what Pulisic did to carve up that Real Madrid defense in the first leg, I was amazed that he didn't start. I he don't know what's going to happen he, he there. Came, he came on. He came on, you know, in like the 69th minute or whatever it was. Uh, and uh, and had a great assist. So good for him. He really, really proved himself. But odd choice. I think his frustration is starting to come up a little bit because, you know, he mentioned how frustrated he was in the press. So, cause he has had to prove himself more than anyone else. And he's been head and shoulders above other players out there sometimes. So it, it's uh, been interesting. Well, one of the guys I want to give a shout out to is uh, Jeff Cameron. Uh, he's been a great warrior uh, for the United States and, and overseas. Uh, he's the QPR captain. He's going to leave the London based championship club following the 2021 campaign which ends saturday so he's 35 years old i thought he got screwed in the last world cup qualifying round he should have been part of it uh i take him back flinny honestly people say he's 35 i would seriously give him a look for the team for the center back yeah absolutely and it's still up in the air so i i think he deserves a look He, he should have been on the team last time so uh he signed originally on loan uh from Stoke City in August of 2018. So he's made 88 appearances in three seasons with QPR, um, played five seasons in MLS with Houston Dynamo. Uh, you know, I always liked him. Did Bruce Arena not like him? What was that? He had a problem with one of the coaches, didn't Yeah, like him. I think it was Arena uh, at the end there that they had some words. Because, you know, I think he's very outspoken politically. Yeah. He sort of jumped on the Trump train a little bit, I think, which, which, um, sort of put people the wrong way but that shouldn't affect anything no. as a player but I think it was his attitude basically coming back and you know we've all seen that where guys come back from a certain level and they start to tell you what it's what it what it really is all about you know and it's right. like wow okay you know uh, perhaps you're not, you're not meant for this so Sam you got a quiz for us and then what games are we watching and then uh we will we will leave these people to uh 
do the rest of their lives. Yeah, uh, just just a really quick quiz. Um, this year, we will have a men's American Champions League winner. It'll either be Zach Steffen or Christian Pulisic, um, mm-hmm. which is something that has only happened once before in history. Can you guys tell me who that was and when it was? Were there two or one? There is one Beasley. American. Who has Beasley or Jovan Shirovsky, right? I'm going to say Beasley. It is Shirovsky. Uh, well done. Whoa. Jovan Shirovsky. And it's, you know, it's kind Man, of a technicality. Uh, he was a 21-year-old playing for Dortmund in 97 when they beat Juve in the final. Uh, however, wow. he did not play at all in the knockout rounds and wasn't even in the squad for the final. But he did get a winner's wow. medal because uh, he made two substitute appearances in the group stage. There you go. So, there you I go. mean, so, I realize that's a little you bit got of the hardware. You got the hardware. How about my answer, man? I got that right. Yeah. I don't know well where done. that came from. Yeah. Well done, Flynn. Good stuff. Um, yeah. So my games of the week, I got three. I got Dortmund against Leipzig Saturday, 9.30 a.m. on ESPN. That's Reina against Adams. That's also sort of the battle for you know, the number two spot in Germany. Um, Barca Atletico will go a long way to deciding the final um, uh, the final, you know, Wow, a lot on the line for that one, yeah. By the way, Sam, just on on a side note with Barca, yeah, Messi scored his 50th goal, free kick goal Mm. in the last match. 50 goals from free kicks. That's a a pretty extraordinary number. Yeah. Uh, So that's Saturday, 10, 15 a.m. on BN. And then finally, Juve Milan, uh, both teams tied for uh, third place right now. Um, That's uh, 2.45 p.m. Sunday on ESPN+. Okay. I've I want got to see to... the uh, Liverpool game, Liverpool-Southampton, because I, I want to see just how hungry Liverpool is to make it into that top four and if it's still possible. And, guys, quick question. What happens to Man United? Do they forfeit? Do what well, they have, they have they have, No, they're going to re, reschedule the game. Um, they're not forfeiting. Wow. I, would, I, I think it would be good if they had to forfeit. But uh, So, anyway, yeah. quick, just quickly, tonight Clemson, our Clemson Tigers, Mike Noonan's Clemson Tigers against uh, Marshall this evening. So I'm hoping to Marshall, find that. Wow. I'm hoping to find that somewhere. And then Saturday, Man City versus Chelsea, in kind of a dress rehearsal. And I, who knows what players they're going to play in that game? Could be. The He's B looking at Chelsea again, Sam. What are the odds? What no, are the no, odds, no, Sam, could be the, no. I mean, I, it, it is just kind of ironic that they both just qualified for the final and then they're just playing each other this Saturday. All so. right. Mm. Well, this is this is a good time of year to be a football fan, a soccer fan, because oh, there's, the there's a lot of great games on there and. A lot of, uh, you know, trying to get to the top of the table, getting the top four, promotion, relegation, all of it comes to fruition this time of year. So uh, some, some good television coming up. We'll be talking about it next week on Over the Ball. All right, everybody, that's all the time we have today. I'd like to thank the writer John Townsend and his great book, It's Just a Ball, Exploring the Complexity of a Simple Game. Uh, for Sam Griswold and Grail Hallett, I'm Kevin Flynn, and we'll talk to you next time on OTB. OTB.